1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where we're going to be tonight. Uh, we're going to be looking at, uh, beginning with a section really uh, on 1 Thessalonians uh, that is, uh, it's, it's very, very, it's very famous. It's often debated. There's all kinds of different ideas. But uh, as we begin looking at the rest of last week, we did the first eight verses of chapter four, and we talked about brotherly love and that sort of thing. Tonight, and, and then for the rest of at least First Thessalonians, for the, re the rest of chapter four and the first part of chapter five, seem to be uh, addressing several questions that had come from the, the church in Thessalonica through Tim Timothy. You remember Paul sent Timothy to check on them and he came back with a report and it was a good report, but apparently they had some questions and, and the questions that they had were regarding the resurrection of believers and questions about the second coming of Christ. Now it's important. I just want to lay this as foundational as we get into this. It's important to remember that Paul's uh, instruction here, the Paul's teaching here is more pastoral than it is theological. What I mean by that is it's, it's really a pastoral exhortation to a grieving church and it's not really intended to provide detailed theological explanations about future events. And because of this, uh, as we, as, cause we're going to begin talking, we're going to be talking about the second coming of Christ, the rapture of the church, some of these things in this passage. But we need to understand it's not going to answer every question about future events that we may have. In fact, sometimes you read this passage and you have more questions as a result. Uh, but it does give us some powerful insights concerning the future hope of every believer at Christ's return. But the, the overall point of this passage, however, is to remind us that God's promises about tomorrow, God's promises about the future and what he's going to do are designed to enable us and to encourage us to live a hopeful life today. So that's the background of it. Let's just jump in in verse 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are, are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, as we dive into this very famous passage of Scripture, the, the phrase that he starts off there where he says, we do not want you to be ignorant. That's a phrase that Paul used several times in different places in his letters. Um, and, and of course, we sometimes use the word ignorant as kind of a insult. You know, we, we say, say somebody, you're just ignorant. Well, what it really means is, is it's, you just don't know. You're ignorant of this particular fact. You're ignorant of this information. Uh, that you just don't know. And that's really the idea behind it. Uh, and he uses this phrase to introdu introduce different topics at different times, uh, trying to clarify uh, uh, information for whoever he's writing to. Now, we know that the believers in Thessalonica had been taught that Christ would one day return and take his people to himself. Paul said, 
in different places that you know uh, what we taught you about this. So they already knew this. They knew that Christ was going to come back. They knew about a lot of these things. They had learned that every believer should be ready for the return of Christ at any moment. In fact, uh, we everything that we read, they apparently expected this to happen at any time, and they really definitely expected it to happen before their lifetime was over. So apparently what had happened was, as these believers were awaiting Christ's return, some of them, for what we don't know how, what caused it, but some of them died. And Paul, remember, he had his time in Thessalonica cut short, so maybe this is the type of thing that he would have taught normally in a church if he had been there longer. But they, he had not uh, uh, talked with them about what it meant to die in the Lord. If you're a follower of Christ, then you die. And so they, they were really confused. They were wondering why this had happened before Christ returned, because they thought Jesus is going to come back before any of us die. And, and then they were also wondering, wondering what would happen to those who had died when he did come back, because they feared that those who died prior to Christ's return would somehow miss out on the great gathering of God's people that would occur at the end of human, human history. And to to make matters worse, false teachers were adding to their confusion by circulating a letter that was supposedly from Paul that was suggesting, the letter was suggesting that the day of the Lord's judgment had already come. We know that from 2 Thessalonians. We're not going to cover that tonight. We'll get to that when we get to 2 Thessalonians. So there was this fake letter going around that was suggesting to them that that they had missed the, the rapture, that the, the day of God's judgment had already arrived, and here they are. Think about this. They thought Jesus was going to return before anybody, any of them passed away. Now somebody has died. At least one person has died. And they're looking at their lives and they're, they're, they have this ongoing suffering and ongoing persecution. And so some of them became convinced that they had missed the rapture and now they were experiencing the day of the Lord. Now, I'm going to just say just right up front, we're going to deal more with that phrase, the day of the Lord, when we get to second Thessalonians. But the phrase, the day of the Lord, that it's a very specific phrase. It's a it's a prophetic phrase and it's it's referencing the 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 coming time of judgment from God. It's what we in our modern uh, theological language would call the tribulation. That's the, the that's what's the day of the Lord. That's what it is. And we'll, we'll address that phrase more fully when we get to 2 Thessalonians. But no doubt that the, the, the thought uh, that their loved ones would not be with Christ, after all, caused them great sorrow. And their grief and their hopelessness was actually the direct result of their failure to understand death from God's perspective. Um, and, and that comes from their background. See, this is what when Paul would, would be in a place longer, he would be able to teach on these things and questions would arise and he'd be able to deal with it. But since he had to cut his time short there, there were all of these questions. We have to understand their background. What did the Thessalonians think about death? What did they believe about death before Paul brought the gospel to them? Well, in Greek thought, the, at death, the soul lived on, but with no hope. It sort of lived in this ambiguous afterlife. It was no, it was, there was not like an idea of heaven or hell or any kind of that. It was no specific afterlife. It was just that the flow, the soul just existed out there somewhere. 
Listen to some of these quotes from, uh, from the, the, the Greek philosophers in Greek time. Here, here's one, and I'm not even going to try to say his name because, I, well, I, why, why, he's not here, so he's not going to be offended, but something like Achilles or Achilles or something like that. But this is what he, he said. Once a man dies, there is no resurrection. Well, that means it's it. Uh, once a man said, uh, named Theocritus, wrote, there, there is hope for those who are alive, but those who have died are without hope. This is the culture in which the Thessalonians live. Another man, Catullus, I have no idea if that's how the right, right way to say his name, he said, when once our brief light sets, there is one perpetual night through which we must sleep. So, and then one tombstone, one grave marker was carved with these words. This is what it said. I was not. I became, I am not, I care not. Very, you know, uh, dark and, and just a really negative um, view of death. And so they, these Thessalonians have all lived all of their lives in this culture of hopelessness concerning death. Now, that view of death contrasts very strongly with Paul's view of death and with the biblical view of death and what the Bible teaches about it. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know and understand that death is not the end. So they had to retrain their thought and understand that what they had believed about death all their life was not, was not what, the, what, the, what, the, uh, what Christianity taught, not what the Bible teaches. So he wanted the Thessalonians to understand that those who die in Christ suffer no defeat and they experience no loss their bodies may be asleep in the grave, but a day of awakening is coming. In fact, Paul uses that phrase many times. He uses it here to, as a euphemism for death when he says those who have fallen asleep. And he's not doing it because he's afraid of using the word death or that he's like, oh, that's just a scary, that's a touchy word. He's using it because he's trying to describe to them the state of the body, not the state of the soul. There is a there's a theology, it's a wrong theology that talks about soul sleep that says that when you die, your soul sleeps until the resurrection comes. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. But your body goes in the grave. And here's the thing about it. When I take a nap, when I go to sleep, I'm going to wake up. It's a temporary thing. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate to the Thessalonians here. When he says those who have fallen asleep, he helps them to understand, even by using that phrase, hey, this death thing has been conquered. This death thing is not permanent. This is a temporary situation. And when, when Christ returns, all believers, both the, those who are dead and those who are alive, will be reunited, never to suffer or die again. And the principle that Paul was teaching is that the man who has died in Christ is still in Christ, even in death, and he will rise with him. And we're going to get into some of that about that resurrection tonight. And in light of this truth, he says that believers need not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, be very clear here. Paul does not say that believers should not grieve. That is not what he says at all. But he does say that we don't need to grieve in the same way or to the same extent as those who grieve without hope. See, there's a big difference. I, I can remember, I, I've seen this, this contrast. I remember one time when we were in, in uh, Reno, 
I, I ended up having to do two funerals on the same day. Uh, only time in my whole ministerial career I've had to do two funerals on one day. I did one in the morning, one in the afternoon. The one in the morning was for a, a young man who, as far as we know, did not know the Lord. And none of his family, or very few, I should say, not none, very few of the people at the funeral knew the Lord. And I'm telling you, you, you walked in there and it was such a heavy, hard atmosphere. It was difficult. The one in the afternoon was for a lady who had known the Lord and had served the Lord for many years, a great woman of God. And the atmosphere there, while people were grieving because they, they'd lost you know, a mother, a, a, a family member, a sister, an aunt, whoever it might be, they lost somebody. But the atmosphere was not the heaviness without hope. It's a different grief altogether. Paul recognized that the death of a loved one naturally results in grieving. There's nothing wrong with grieving over the loss of someone that you, that you, that you care for. But when we as Christians grieve for another Christian who has died, it's a different kind of grief because of the fact that we know this death is temporary. This is not the end. Grief is a very normal, natural human emotion uh, as we think about, about loved ones who have passed on. It's, it's normal. It's natural. It's the way God has wired us. We should not, you know, we, we, we should not. Uh, it, it's part of the healing process is that grieving process. And so we shouldn't try to short circuit that. However, to sorrow like those who do not have hope is to forget the very purpose for which Jesus came. If I grieve like I have no hope, for, for the, with this person who knew the Lord who passed away, like my, my dear, my dear loved one, uh, Ted Britton, I don't grieve, I grieve, but not, I don't grieve for him. I don't grieve for him. I grieve for me. I grieve for the family. Uh, but, but if I were to grieve without hope, that would be the same as me saying that, that the, that Jesus coming and being raised from the dead and this whole gospel thing, it would make it meaningless because what's the point if it's just to make us feel better for a lifetime? It's much more than that. It's much more than that. So while the pain is real, the fact that these loved ones will be seen again, as this passage in Thessalonians describes, gives us hope. So let's talk about our foundation. Why is it that we can have hope in that situation? Verse 14, we read it. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. So he starts off that phrase, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That actually sounds very much like it's part of, of some sort of written catechism, some sort of uh, system of teaching, some creed that they may have said. And we read that verse, and the question is, what is the foundation of our hope that death is not the end? Well, Paul reminded the Thessalonians here right off the bat that their hope was in the resurrection. Their hope was in the res resurrection. Here, I want you to hear this. We're going to talk a little bit about this. That Jesus died is essential to our faith. But that he was raised is absolutely critical. Because listen, a dead Jesus does nothing to bring me hope. But a risen Christ gives me all the hope in the world. Uh, Paul, therefore, reminds us of, of this transforming truth. 
And we'll explain what this means. The death of Christ purchased our redemption. But the resurrection of Christ proves our redemption. It's the evidence of our redemption. The resurrection of Jesus is the key to the Christian faith. Why is that? And that's because the resurrection is evidence that our sins have truly been forgiven and that we are now children of God. It's evidence that what Jesus did on the cross was accepted by God. Let me explain it like this. If you go back in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, uh, once a year, the high priest of Israel would would take a sacrifice uh, for, for all the sins of the people, and he would take that sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, uh, in, the in the tabernacle. And, and so he would go in there, and, and here's the thing. If, if the sacrifice was not acceptable, or the priest offering the sacrifice was not acceptable, what would happen to that priest? They'd die. They'd die. So... What was the evidence for Israel every year on the Day of Atonement that, that their sacrifice had, had been accepted and that their sin had been covered by the blood of that sacrifice? What was the evidence? The priest coming back out alive. You, you see this? If that priest died in there, now they're like, uh-oh, something was wrong with one of the two here. And, and, and so our sins are not covered. The sacrifice was not accepted. Jesus is our great high priest. We know this from Hebrews. And Jesus went into the real Holy of Holies. Because here's what we, we know from Hebrews is that what we saw in the, in the temple and in the tabernacle in Israel was really, uh, it was really a picture of, of, of the real presence of God. And so Jesus, and we're going to read this from Hebrews, Jesus went into the real Holy of Holies in where the presence of God the Father is after his sacrifice uh, uh, on the cross. This is part of what he was doing those three days when he was in the grave. And he went in there and he offered his own blood. The, you read Hebrews, it's all over in there. But he took his blood in as a sacrifice, the same way that the priest would take in the blood sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. And he, would take his, he took his own blood and offered it as a, a sin sacrifice on our behalf. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that were already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. That's the real tabernacle. The, the tabernacle here on earth was just a picture of the real thing. Verse 12, he did not enter by means of, of the blood of goats and calves. That'd be like the earthly high priest did. But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having it obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God. He's the high priest offering himself as the sacrifice at the same time. Uh, cleanse our consciences, consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. So Jesus takes in this sacrifice for sin into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of the living God, and the evidence for us that that sacrifice was enough, that that sacrifice was acceptable, that that sacrifice, because he took it in, he says, for the sins of all, for all time, 
He took it in there, the evidence for us that that was acceptable to God and that the high priest who offered it was acceptable to God was the very fact that Jesus came back out of the Holy of Holies alive. So the resurrection, it's not just a neat thing that God did. It's not just, you know, where, where some God's like, hey, come here, Gabriel, watch this. This will be really cool. You know, wait till you see what I got, what I got next. It was all part of the process to prove to us that what Jesus did was real and that who Jesus said he was, he truly was. Um, and just as he promised, Jesus rose from the dead. We can be confident, therefore, that, that he will accomplish all that he has promised. Because here's the thing. He promised multiple times, you're gonna kill, they're going to kill me, but in three days I'll rise again. That's a pretty big promise. Here's what I'm saying to you right now. When you think about every promise that in the New Testament, every promise in the Bible, every promise that's been made, if Jesus can keep that promise to come back from the dead... He can keep any promise. This is the, the, we can be certain of our resurrection because he was resurrected. Death is not the end. There is, there is future life. In fact, Jesus, we're told, was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, now what are first fruits? That's the first part of a harvest. There's more coming. You know, when you, when you start a harvest and you take out a few, You've got the first fruits. That doesn't mean that the harvest is done and you're not going to harvest anymore, does it? No, it means that it's the first of many to come. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, but the fact is that Christ has been raised from the dead. The fact is that Christ has been raised from the dead. He has become the first of a great harvest of those who will be raised to life again. What a powerful promise. His resurrection is proof that we will be resurrected. The, the power that brought Jesus back, back to life is also available to us to bring our, our, our spiritual selves that are dead, their spiritually dead selves back to life. Romans 8, 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. The, the, the resurrection is the basis for the, for the church's witness to the world. Jesus proved at the resurrection that he was more than just a human leader. He proved himself to be exactly who he claimed to be, the very son of God. Um, the, 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 here's another thing about the resurrection. The resurrection, and this is what Paul was talking about, is the foundation of hope for, for every believer after death. Um, here's the question. Here's the question that the believers were asking. Where are believers who have already died? Now, we know the answer from, from Paul because Paul told us in 1 Corinthians. He, 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 we know that believers who've already died are in heaven. More accurately, they're in the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 5.8. Yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these bodies. That's dead. For then we will be at home with the Lord. So, you know, we talk about those who have died, they're in heaven. Well, where is heaven? Where, where is heaven? Well, see, what we're not talking about here is necessarily a specific place. We're talking about on the spiritual realm. It's not so, the question is not so much where are they? The question is, with whom are they? 
Because what will make heaven heaven? Is it going to be, is it the streets of gold that the Bible talks about that's going to make it heaven? Is it the, the, the gates of pearl? Is it, all, is it the, all of these things that's going to make heaven heaven? No, that's not what it is. What makes heaven is that that's where Jesus is. That's where God is. And so when we say that they're in heaven, they're not in the place, you know, because you read the book of Revelation. You, the Bible says a new heaven and new earth are coming down and, and we got all this stuff. They're not in that final place. They're with God. That's, that's what we know. Where that is, I don't know. Because we get, we use metaphors all the time. We say, well, heaven, where's heaven? It's up. Well, it's, it's not really up. Because if it was up from here, then it'd be like down from China, right? You know, so it's not really up. We use up in the sense that it's higher, that it's better, it's greater. And, 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 and that sense of things. So, you know, it's not, it's not like heaven's in a corner of the universe somewhere and maybe one day we'll figure out where it is. It's, that's not what it is. Uh, b- because we're talking about something that's existing now in the spiritual realm. All we know is that's, it, that, that is, those people are in the presence of God. They are in the presence of their Savior. We know that. And, and that's why Paul writes that, that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. That's what he, we just read in 1 Thessalonians. So we know that presently they are with God. And, and Paul said there in, let's see, what verse was it specifically? I'll, uh, uh, it was in verse uh, verse 15. We know that specifically Paul said that the Lord himself will come from heaven. Uh, Let me find the right place. Well, maybe it's not 15. Anyway, you can find it. I think it's 13, 14, somewhere in there. But it says that they will come with him when Christ returns. So their spirits, which God has preserved... Because death is a real enemy. Uh, uh, I didn't plan on getting into all this, but, but, but here's the thing. See, death is a real enemy because uh, human beings, we're, we're made of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. If any one of those parts are gone, we're no longer human. Um, and and that's, why, that's why death is such an enemy and that's why the resurrection's coming. See, you know, we, we got to think these things through sometimes because the thing, the thing is God didn't just say, hey, you know what would be cool? Let's do a resurrection just for no reason. There's a purpose behind everything that he's doing. It's because he created us. I can never be Dave without my body. And the only way after death that I continue to be Dave is if God somehow sustains me in his presence. And then one day at when the trumpet sounds, when all that, when we're going to read about this in a moment, when that happens and Christ returns, this body, if I'm, if I, if I fall asleep in the Lord before he comes, this body be resurrected and my spirit and soul will be reunited with this body. Only thankfully it's not going to be in the current condition. Thank you, Jesus. Can I get an amen on that one? Every ache and pain is going to be gone. I, I firmly believe I'm not going to be overweight. You know, all these things. I don't know about any of that for stuff, but but it's not going to be the same. It'll be a perfected. It'll be a glorified body. We're not here to talk about all that tonight, but but uh, 
but Paul was trying to make a point here to these Thessalonians who thought these dead believers are going to miss out because they're not alive to, to greet Christ when he comes. They're not watching for him. They're not waiting for him. And he was trying to make it clear to them that believers who have fallen asleep in Christ have not missed out. And in fact, not only have they not missed out, they're actually in a better spot than we are because they're enjoying God's presence. And not only that, not only that, he said, those of us who are alive will not precede them. And we're told that the dead in Christ rise first. They get to go first in this whole thing. So we have hope in death because uh, the, the separation of loved ones due to death, we know for those that are in Christ, that separation is only temporary. And those that are in Christ, we will be reunited together with them, and we will be reunited forever, never to part again. So let's move on to the part where he talks about Christ's return. And this section that we're going to read here focuses on one of the most discussed and most debated passages in the Bible. The focus of this debate is centered on Paul's reference to the snatching away or what is, has become known as the rapture of the church. The, the Greek word, just so you know where this goes, because somebody might say to you, oh, because there are a lot of people that will argue this. And they'll say there's, there's the rapture, the word rapture doesn't even appear in the church. Well, there are lots of theological words, excuse me, in the Bible. There's lots of theological words that don't appear in the Bible. I want you to understand where it comes from. The, the Greek word that, that's translated in the NIV as caught, caught up is the Greek word harpazo, which, which means to seize or to snatch or to take away. And, and when the New Testament was translated into Latin, the, word, the Latin word that they used in that place to translate harpazo into Latin is the Latin verb rapere. R-A-P-E-R-E, rapere, as you can see. And it means to take by force. It is that Latin word from which we derived our English word, rapture. So that's where it comes from. It comes from this verse, but it comes, the word rapture comes from the Latin translation of, of this verse. And, and, and so all of it, both words, they imply a sudden, violent snatching away. That's the idea behind it. And so these words give us a definite picture of a taking of the believers from the earth. They will be caught up. And I'm here to tell you, that there is no debate as to whether there will be a rapture of the church. The only debate really between theologians is when that's going to happen. And we'll maybe talk a little bit about that. But let's read it, verses 15 through 17. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, uh, meet the Lord in the air, and so will we be with the Lord forever. So Paul starts off by using this phrase, according to the Lord's own word. And he says, we tell you this according to the Lord's own word. And that's a very interesting thing to say, because... From when we read the New Testament, there's nowhere in, in the recorded words of Jesus where he said that. Uh, perhaps what he's saying here 
that it's some teaching of Jesus that wasn't recorded on paper, that was passed on orally by the apostles. Perhaps it was something that Jesus himself had given to Paul through special revelation as an apostle. They were, they were still receiving these. They were writing down the scripture. In fact, we know that Paul says, uh, we know that Paul spent three years in the wilderness being taught by Jesus himself. And so it could have been during that time that he, that he learned this. But, but however it came to him, however he learned this, Paul makes it clear that this is not something he came up with. This was not his idea. This was not his opinion. But he's saying this came directly from Jesus. So that's, that's pretty substantial there. The, con- the confusion in Thessalonica rested on misinformation and false teaching from this false letter that was circulating. And Paul wanted them to understand that his teaching, what he was giving to them in this moment, was not just simply another opinion to consider. It's not just a neat idea of what might happen, but he wanted them to know that he was speaking for God. And Paul, uh, unlike many people nowadays, when he said, this is from God, he took that very, very seriously. You know, a lot of people nowadays, they'll say, well, I feel like God's got this to say, and they'll say something, and it's like, wow, that, you know, <laughs> he's just looking at me like, I know that didn't come from God. Uh, in fact, I have people say at times in my life, they'll say, I've got a word from the Lord for you. And I, I, at times I've stopped them and said, okay, now listen, I want you to understand. If it's truly a word from the Lord, I want to hear what you have to say. But if you're not sure it's from God, don't represent it to be from God because you're going to have to answer to him. You know, you don't want to st- stand in front of him and for him to say, hey, why would you, why were you telling these people I said something I didn't say? But Paul took it very seriously. And Paul reminded the Thessalonian believers that Jesus is coming again and that all believers will share in the blessings of his, of his return, whether they were dead or alive. So without question, the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming again. He is coming again. We, we don't, and I think, I, I think, you know, in modern day American, in the church here, we Sometimes we forget that. We get away from that a little bit more than we should, but there's no question. In fact, let me give you these statistics. 23 out of the 27 books in the New Testament all state that he is coming again. 23 out of 27. One out of every 30 verses in the New Testament either speaks directly of his coming or speak of the end times surrounding his coming. One out of every 30 verses. Get this one. For every biblical reference to Jesus' first coming, talking about the whole Bible now, for every biblical reference to his first coming, what we're celebrating at Christmas, there are eight verses that point to his return. That's, that's, a, that's significant. So clearly the biblical writers did not want the, the readers to miss the truth that Jesus, the conquering king, will come again. So Paul teaches that Christians who have died are already with Christ and will be with him when he returns and that those who are alive will by no means precede those who have died. So let's walk through this, what he says. He says, Christ the Lord himself will come down from heaven for, and again, from heaven, we say come down from heaven. We're using metaphorical language because, you know, it's not up, it's, it's higher, it's better, it's greater. And he will descend from that greatness into our realm 
And, and, and because that's where he has been. He's, heaven is in the presence of God. And that's where he has been since his resurrection and ascension. Acts 1, 9 through 11. Listen to this. After saying this, he, speaking of Jesus, was taking, taken up into a cloud while they were watching. The disciples are there standing there. This is the ascension of Christ. They're watching him. He's, he's talking to them. And all of a sudden he starts ascending into heaven. And, and he's surrounded by clouds. And it says, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. So these angels appeared. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So right there, we have, we have another thing where it's saying, Jesus ascended and, and these angels are saying he's going to come back the same way. And when he will descend in the, in the clouds, he will come back uh, physically to this earth. Philippians 3.20, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. So we know where he is. He's in the, he's in heaven. He's in the presence of the father. First uh, Thessalonians 1.10, you're looking forward to the coming of God's son from heaven Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, he is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.7, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 1.7. God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. So Jesus himself will descend to this earth. He will appear in the heavens. He will be seen physically. Then... It says, it's, he tells us that Christ will descend with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Now, all of those things are significant. First of all, the loud command is a word that's used to describe a, a command such as a military officer gives to his soldiers or, or you know, a, a charioteer would give to his horses some verbal command. It's this loud command. And we see pictures of this. We see moments of this. Uh, Jesus said in, in John 5, don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's son and they will rise again. It's the same thing. He's saying, talking about the, the, the spoken command. And, and, and listen, here's, you want a real precursor of what we're talking about here? Remember the story of Lazarus? Lazarus 11, Jesus called in a loud voice. It's the same thing. Called in a loud voice. Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. That's a, I, talk, I tell you what, if there's ever a metaphorical picture of the rapture, of the, of the resurrection, it's right there of Jesus descending into the, to this earth, it's descending from the heavens into the clouds and with a loud shout, Saying to all of those, and I think, you know, somebody once said Jesus had to specifically call Lazarus out because if he just said, come forth and all the dead, maybe that's going to happen. Maybe he's going to return and say, hey, all the, all the oxen free. You know, I don't know. Probably won't be that, but it'll be like, come forth. I don't know what it'll be, but it's going to be this loud shout. And then it says that the voice of the archangel, it, that, that, that you'll hear the voice of the archangel. Now, uh, the voice of the archangel is the voice of a powerful angel who stands before God. He's kind of like number one in rank in the heaven, heavenly realm as far as angels go. I want you to see something I think may be here. 
when you talk about this because this is the moment that's leading up to the to the wedding of the of the groom with his bride Jesus and his church and I want you to think about these things and and I'm again now you, you can take this or leave it this is but but in Jewish tradition when a wedding took place what would happen is that the bridegroom would go off and somewhere on his father's land he would build a home prepare a home for his new bride for uh, where the newly newly excuse me excuse me for where the newlyweds would live and he would go off and he would work on that and and uh, they're not married yet but they're betrothed and they're the wedding is coming and he would work on it and then and he would work and work and work until it was completed and 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 what they did is they would they would keep secret the time uh, when he would go and get his bride, he wouldn't let them know. He wouldn't let the bride know. I'm, I'm going to come, uh, you know, two two days from now. They sort of almost began to make a game out of it over the over the years, and the and the groom would try to surprise the bride. You know, this great moment of, hey, guess what? We're going to get married today. I got the house ready, and they're, it's like, oh, thank goodness, I'm so happy. You know, and that, that kind of thing. I don't know if that's really how they respond, but. And in fact, it got to the point where trying to surprise the bride, many times they would come in the middle of the night to pick up the bride just to try to make it a big surprise. And, and so what would happen is when the groom was coming, he would be coming with his whole entourage. They'd be traveling with him back to over to where the bride was to pick up the bride for this great wedding. But one person would go out ahead of them and would lead the way and, and, it, and they would go out in front of them. When they got to the house, before the groom arrived, all of a sudden, this person would start shouting, The bridegroom is coming! The bridegroom is coming! I can't help but wonder if that's what the, the, the archangel is going to shout. That he's going to go before the, the, Jesus, and then just before he appears, that the voice of the archangel will be heard saying, the bridegroom is coming! You're ready, bride! And that just almost gives me chills thinking about that. That moment. Then it says a trumpet blast will signal Christ's return. Now, trumpets were very powerful symbols in Jewish religion, in Jewish culture. Um, it's used multiple times in Scripture where the trumpet would, would convey uh, some significant moment. And the, and the Jews would understand the significance of this because uh, trumpets were, were, were often blown to signal the start of, of great festivals or, or other extraordinary events in the nation. In, in fact, in Drew, Jewish tradition, during the Feast of Tabernacles, which happens in the fall, uh, a trumpet was blown at the, at the end of the harvest and that trumpet said, harvest is over, and it would call the harvesters in. And, and when the trumpet blows at the rapture of the church, it's going to signal the end of the harvest and a gathering in of those who have wor been working in the harvest. I think there's just so much beauty in all of this. And then, in response, the dead in Christ will rise first. They get to go first. I, I can't help but wonder if it's because they're being reunited with their bodies and there's that moment that takes first and then we all go together physically with the Lord. I don't know why, 
but they, we know that they're going to rise first. And although they've been with Christ since death, their bodies will be resurrected. Their bodies will be made new and they will, that'll be the first reunion that takes place is the, the spirits of, of those that have gone on in their bodies. First Corinthians chapter 15, one of the great, great uh, uh, chapters that talk to us about death and, and the biblical perspective of death. He said this in verses 51 and 52. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret, or as some translations, they call it a mystery. And, and, and when you read the word mystery in the New Testament, don't, don't think of it in the way that we use mystery in English. Because in English, we use mystery as something that's like, hmm, here's a puzzle to be solved. That's not what it means in the New Testament. When you see the word mystery, what that means, it's a truth that up to that point in time had been unknown, but is now being revealed. So Paul is saying, Here's something I'm going to tell you that has been unknown, but now I'm revealing to you the truth of it. Let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. There's that word. There's that trumpet. The last trumpet, which by the way, the Feast of Tabernacles, there's a series of trumpets during that feast and the last one is the one that calls the harvesters in. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. Christ will return, and the dead will rise out of their graves with their new bodies. And after the dead have risen from their graves, then believers who are alive and remain on the earth will be caught up together with Christ and the resurrected believers. And somewhere in that process, these old bodies, if we're still alive, are going to be changed. We're going to be transformed. We will see him as he is and we will be made like him. Our bodies will be changed and all believers will be together with one another and with the Lord forever. Forever. Never to part again. Never to say goodbye again. This supernatural event will cause a massive reunion among believers who are alive at the rapture of the church with those who have already gone on before us. On that day, I'm, I'm going to get to see my, my, my precious friend Ted. I'm going to get to see my dad again. I'm going to get to see my, my grandparents and those who have gone before us. I'm going to get to see all of those people. All of us have loved ones who have gone on in the Lord before us. And we're going to see them again. Them, their bodies, not just a representation, not just their spirit floating around somewhere, but their bodies will be resurrected. Their bodies will be changed as yours will be changed. You will see them. You will know them. It's them. And will never be parted again. It's so powerful. You talk about hope. You talk about why we don't grieve as those with no hope. What hope? And both of those groups will experience Christ's return for his church together. And that joyous reunion will go on forever. Forever. It's so powerful. But, but I think we need to, we're going to close with talking a little bit about this. We need to talk about the reason for this teaching that Paul was giving. Because he wasn't just saying, hey, let me just let you in on some pretty interesting stuff. I, I want you to see some really cool theological information. I want you to know about this. It's more than that. Here's the reason. Verse 18. Therefore, 
encourage each other with these words. The reason for this knowledge is for encouragement. You know, as I said, there's been much debate about end time events and the timing of their events. Theologians have disagreed and still disagree as to whether the rapture of the church was going to happen before the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation or after the tribulation. I, I personally believe that it's before the tribulation. And I think even in Thessalonians, there's evidence for a pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, for example, there's little doubt that the Thessalonians were eagerly looking for Christ's return, even expecting it during their lifetimes. But there is little indication, if any, that they expected ever expected to experience the day of the Lord. They, there's no indication they expected to experience the judgment. There's no doubt that Paul taught them about the day of the Lord. Yet there's no suggestion that he ever tried to prepare them for the day of the Lord. Uh, rather, his intention was to give them truth to clarify the conclusion, conclusion, their confusion. The implication of that for me is that Paul knew that the church would be gone, so there's no reason to prepare them for the day of the Lord. Uh, and so, but that's neither here nor there. That's a subject for another day. What we really want, want, to, want to close with is it a, about the encouragement, because here's the thing. Knowing exactly when the dead will be raised in relation to other events at the rapture of the church Knowing when it happens is not nearly as important as knowing why Paul wrote these words. Paul's intention was not to provide believers with a blow-by-blow account of what will happen when Jesus returns. Now, certainly, some of that is reflected in what he wrote, but the focus of the passage is encouragement. Paul's purpose is to provide comfort to a group of people who are not sure about the fate of those who have died before the return of Christ. So Paul wrote these words to motivate these believers to comfort and encourage one another during the hardships of life. Our concern should not be the date of when Jesus will come. Our concern should be how faithful we are how faithfully we are living until he comes people get caught up all the time in trying to predict the rapture and trying to predict Christ's return all these sort of things and you know it's just it's just wasted time because even if you get it right what difference does that make the concern is not when it will happen it's knowing that it will happen and asking ourselves how am i living in light of that but here's something else I want you to think about. Our hope is not only for the future. It's not only one day when Christ returns, then we'll have hope. Because the truth is, eternal life begins when we trust Christ and join God's family. I am already living an eternal life. Now, my body's not quite there yet. <laughs> it hadn't got that message, you know what I'm saying. Every morning when I wake up and you know, I move and something hurts. It's like, don't you know? <laughs> you just want to convince it, but it does. My body hadn't got that message, but, but I, am, I already have eternal life. I'm already going to live forever in, in the presence of Christ. And, and no matter what pain or trial we face in this life, here's what we know. Because we have this life, because we know Christ, because we know He's coming, because we know the resurrection is real, because we know that His resurrection guarantees that we will be resurrected, because we know we have all these things in the future, 
Then when we're facing through those things, we're walking through the painful and the, and, and the uh, difficult times and we're dealing with trials and situations in our lives. Here's, we know all those things. So then what, what do we know? We know that whatever I'm going through now is not my final experience. This is not the end. This is not how I'm going to feel the rest of eternity. The pain that my body has, the, the, the difficulties that I walk through, the heartaches that I face, none of them are going to define me forever. And as we share these words of encouragement with others, then we are, ourselves are built up in our faith. So in, in light of this powerful preview of Christ's return, we need to ask ourselves, how should I respond? That's what matters. Christ is coming. And, and it's great to be excited. It's great to say, woohoo, you know, praise the Lord, whatever we want to say. Hallelujah. We can use any, any word we want to be excited about. But the real question is, how should I respond to that? How does our knowledge of the future affect us as we live in the present? Because if knowledge of Christ's return does not change how I live now, then maybe I'm not really understanding Christ's return. The promise of Jesus is coming is a reason to be hopeful, but it's also a call to be faithful. That he will find me faithful when he comes. Hours behind the runner in front of him, the last marathoner in the 1968 Olympic Games, a man named John Aquari finally entered the Olympic Stadium. By that time, the drama of the, the day's events was almost over and most of the spectators had gone home, but, but Aquari's story was still being played out. During the race, Aquari fell and he, in, in, in about the first third of the race, he fell and he gashed his knee and, and the fall actually caused a dislocation in his knee. And he also fell and he smashed his shoulder against the pavement, pavement and injured it. And most observers seeing his injuries assumed that he would pull out and go to a hospital. In fact, before that race was over in Mexico City, because of the altitude, a lot of it, uh, 18 of the, of the runners just gave up and quit, didn't even finish the race. Instead, he received some medical attention and then he returned to the track to continue his race. Limping into the arena, I actually found video of him. He, uh, limping into the arena, he'd have to stop for a second at times, even just walk a few steps and then take off, try to run again. And you could tell he was in great pain. Limping into the arena, this, this Tanzanian runner grimaced with every step. His knee bleeding, bandaged from the earlier fall. The bandage had come partially loose. It's flapping in the, in the breeze. And, and as he entered the arena, his ragged appearance immediately caught the attention of the remaining crowd. And they began to cheer him on to the finish line. And he finally finished well over an hour beyond, be, be, be behind the, the, the winner of the race. When almost everything else was done, he was the only runner left. He finished the race. Why did he stay in the race? What made him endure his injuries to the end? When asked these questions later, he replied with this. My country did not send me 5,000 miles away to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish it. 
You know what? As you end near the end of a long race, your legs ache, your lungs are burning, you, you just, oh, your body is, is depleted of energy. And in fact, your whole body just cries out for you just to stop. And it's at that moment that your friends and family and anybody else that's watching are most valuable to, to you because their encouragement helps push you through the pain to the finish line. And in the same way, Christians are to encourage one another. A word of encouragement offered at the right moment can mean the difference between a person finishing well or a person collapsing along the way. So look around you. Pay attention to those that are hurting. Look for those that may seem to be flagging a bit. And, and instead of responding with judgment and saying, hey, you better get your act together. Why haven't you been in church? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why are you, what's going on here? Instead of doing that, to respond with encouragement, to re respond and say, hey, Jesus is coming. It's not always going to be like this. Come on, you can make it. I'll run with you. I'll walk with you. You can make it. Be sensitive to others' need for encouragement and offer those supporting words or actions. Because my friend, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Your race is almost over. So keep running. Keep running. Bow your head and let's pray. Father, I thank you for the encouragement we have in knowing, first of all, knowing that this life is not all there is, that there's so much more, that we have an eternity to look forward to, an eternity with you because of what you've done for us and what you've done in us. And God, we thank you that we have this hope that, that what we're walking through now, what we're experiencing now is not what will continue, but one day... All of this will end. All of this will be over. All our pain, our suffering and sorrow and heartache and all these things will, will be no more. And we will be re reunited with those that we love and with you, most of all, forever. And God, I pray that you would let that sink deep into our lives and let it be a source of encouragement for us and also be a source of motivation that we would be faithful, that we live for you faithfully doing what you've asked us to do, loving people around us, proclaiming the gospel, living this faith out that we would be faithful when you return. And we thank you for all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.